The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in a continuing study of the Gospel of John, and we are finishing up a discussion about one of the most memorable individuals in the New Testament, and that, of course, is this man, Nicodemus, this man who came under the cover of darkness to meet Jesus. Just a quick review, we said that John probably includes Nicodemus for a number of reasons, one of which is that Nicodemus appears at the end of the gospel narrative at the time of the Lord's death. He is instrumental in the Lord's burial. He's able to get the body from the Jewish religious leaders and pass it off to Joseph of Arimathea. So that's probably one reason why John records him. But there's probably an even more important reason why John records this particular story about this particular individual. And we said that it has a lot to do with the fact that Nicodemus is, in many ways, a representative man. He's somebody that even today, in the 21st century, even though he's a man that lived in the 1st century, he's someone that you and I can nevertheless relate to. There's so much about Nicodemus that is admirable and praiseworthy, and there's a sense in which we would very much like to be like him. We said last week that he was a moral man. We know that because he was of the party of the Pharisees and they were known for their extreme righteousness. They're sometimes regarded as the villains in the New Testament, but in their own day, they were the conservatives, and they were highly regarded for their moral behavior. He was also a learned man. We know that because of his name. We said that his name, even though he was Hebrew, his name was Greek, Nicodemus, which implies that he was probably a Hellenist. His parents were probably Jews, but they understood life in terms of Greek categories. And so he was a Hellenist. He would have been highly trained. He would have been multilingual. He would have the equivalent of what we would call a graduate education today. Very cosmopolitan individual. We said he was a powerful man because he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was the Sanhedrin. That was the highest body of authority within Judaism in the world. Uh, if you were a serious Jew, your life was governed by the Sanhedrin. didn't matter if you lived in Jerusalem or you were a Jew of the diaspora living somewhere else. You were under the authority, and it was an ultimate authority of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of that council, only about 70 men, only men, I pointed out. And they were indeed very powerful individuals. So he's moral, he's learned, he's powerful. He's distinguished. Josephus, in his book Antiquities, talks about a family that carried this name on through from one generation to the next a family that was distinguished in politics and military and practically everything in Jewish life. And incidentally, it starts with a man by the name of Nicodemus who lived at the time of Jesus. Now, we don't know for certain, but if that is the case, Nicodemus comes from one of the most distinguished families in Judaism as well. And in addition to everything else, he was an informed man. Uh, we know that because when he appears on Jesus' doorstep, Jesus opens the door. The first thing Nicodemus does is tell Jesus all the things that he knows. We know that you're a man who's come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. In other words, he's done his homework on Jesus. 
So this is the kind of individual we all aspire to be like. We want to be like Nicodemus. We'd like to be known as a pillar of the community, as moral individuals, learned, cosmopolitan individuals, powerful, distinguished people. That's what we aspire to. That's what our culture praises. And Nicodemus had it all. And yet somehow he was not content. There was still something missing in his life. He had a restless heart. And we know that because he came to Jesus. Now Jesus, in many respects, this is one of the things that really irked the Pharisees, had nothing. He came from nothing as far as they could tell. He came from Nazareth, and the question was, could anything good come out of Nazareth? In addition to that, he had no formal education. He'd never been licensed to preach, incidentally. They called him a rabbi, but he was not officially that. Jesus had none of the things that Nicodemus had, and yet what he saw in this young man, this young Jewish rabbi, was something that he lacked, Nicodemus that is. He lacked serenity. Jesus just had a surpassing peace about him. And Nicodemus concluded that whatever Jesus had, he wanted. And so he came. We said he came under the cover of darkness because he didn't want anybody else to know. You know, that can be embarrassing when you're such a distinguished individual to come cap in hand to this sort of nobody to ask him. So he came under the cover of darkness, but I think what's important is that he came. Whether he came under the cover of darkness or whether he came in broad daylight, the point is that Nicodemus came to Jesus. And of course, that's the pressing question, isn't it? Have we come to Jesus? I pointed this out some weeks ago. It's not a question of have you come to church. Many people come to church and never come to Christ. The real question is, have you come to him? Well, Nicodemus had. And uh, he immediately tells Jesus all the things that he knows. And Jesus, recognizing that this is a man of action and a man of business who doesn't beat around the bush. Jesus didn't beat around the bush either. He said, Nicodemus, I know exactly what's wrong with you, and I know why you're here, and I'm going to go ahead and prescribe the cure for what ails you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Translate, You're a theologian. You're the one with a seminary degree. You tell me. How is it that you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive the testimony. If we have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Nicodemus generally didn't understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said, you must be born again. I pointed out last week that if you read it in the Greek, it implies born again like the first time. That's why Nicodemus asks the question, how can I be born when I'm old? How can a man go back into his mother's womb? This, this is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense to me. How is that possible? And of course, what Jesus was talking about was not when Nicodemus was born, but when mankind was born. We talked about that. We talked about when God created man from the dust of the earth. Adam was that perfect sod statue, if you will, but he was not alive until God did what? Breathed into him the breath of life, and then he became a living being. And we said that the Hebrew word for breath is an interesting word. It is the word ruach. Sounds like you're clearing your throat. But it means breath, wind, or spirit. And what is interesting is it's the same in Greek. In Greek, the word is panuma, from which we get pneumonia, which is a disease of what? The lungs, the breath box. And it means breath, wind, or spirit. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you have to be born from above, you have to be born again, you have to be born by the spirit. It's interesting to note, we said, that on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up and falls upon the disciples, he comes in the form of symbols that represent his office. He comes as flames because it's his job to illuminate our minds and our hearts to our sin and to our need for righteousness. And it's because it's the Holy Spirit that warms our heart to the love of God. But he also came how? As a mighty rushing wind that filled the place where they were sitting. Well, that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you've got to be born like Adam was born. We talked about that great vision in the Old Testament where the prophet goes out and he sees that valley filled with dry bones. And the Lord asks him the question, which he took to be a trick question, I think. Can these bones live? They're very dry. They're very parched. They're bleached. Can they live? And the prophet responds, Lord, you know. And he says, preach to the wind. And the wind came and filled that valley and filled those dry bones, and they became a living host. That's why Jesus says, Nicodemus, you should understand this of all people. You're a theologian. You've been trained to understand this sort of thing. This is nothing new. It may appear novel to you, but this is nothing new. This is how men and women see the kingdom of God. They must be born again. Well, I closed with this question last week. Have you been born again? It's sad to me that sometimes with Episcopalians or Anglicans, we're uncomfortable with that language of being born again. We say, well, no, that's something that the Baptists do. But, you know, we're a little more staid and conservative. We don't really talk about being born again. Let me tell you something. If you think there are Christians and then there are those born-again Christians, you are in for a rude awakening today. Because I want you to understand there's no other variety of Christian than the born-again Christian. It is as simple as that. There is no other variety of Christian than the born-again Christian. You don't have to take my word for it. In fact, I would encourage you not to always take my word for it. But you can take Jesus' word for it. He states it plainly here in John chapter 3, probably the most famous of all the Gospels and probably the most famous chapter in all the Gospels because the very next verse is the most famous verse in all the Gospels, which is what? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in the most famous chapter, in the most famous gospel, in the most famous book in the world, Jesus, the most famous person in all of history, says you've got to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the next question. How many of you would like to see the kingdom of heaven? Then you must be born again. It is as simple as that. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Now, someone might say, I was born again. And if I were to ask you the question, when did that take place? When were you born again? Some of you will be able to say, well, I was about seven years old, and I, you know, said a prayer and invited the Lord into my heart, and that's when I was born again. I can't give you the exact date. Others can give the exact date. They can tell you exactly when it happened. But many others will say, well, I was born again at my baptism. That's what they'll tell you. I was born again at my baptism. Well, why do you think that? Well, because the prayer book says so. And good Episcopalians, of course, follow the prayer book. This is on page 307 in the prayer book. This is what is known as the thanksgiving over the water. It's part of the baptismal office. And we say these words, Now sanctify this water, we pray you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that those who are here cleansed from sin and born again may continue forever in the risen life of Christ our Savior. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forever. Well, it's right there in black and white. It's right there in the prayer book. That's when I was born again at my baptism. Is that what Jesus means? Or is that what the prayer book even means? I want to suggest to you that neither the Gospel of John nor the prayer book are implying that we are automatically born again simply because somebody pours water on our head. Now, I don't want to belittle the sacrament of baptism. It is absolutely important. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a person can't claim to be born again and refuse to be baptized. No one can really claim to be a Christian and say, I'm not interested in baptism, because Jesus said that we were to be baptized. It's a dominical sacrament. It's a sacrament from the Lord, so we are to do it. So I'm not belittling baptism. I'm just asking the question, what does baptism actually accomplish? It is the sacrament of new birth, but it doesn't mean that it is the sacrament that causes new birth. Now, how do we know that that's not what Jesus is talking about? After all, Jesus does say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven again. So isn't that water a reference to baptism? Some have thought so. But here's the problem with that line of reasoning. First of all, at this point in the gospel narrative, in John's narrative, baptism hasn't really been anything except a baptism for repentance. It's not Christian baptism at this point. You'll recall in the early days of the apostles, when Peter and Paul were going about, they would ask the question, have you been baptized, or have you been baptized with the baptism of John? And what was the baptism of John for? Somebody can say it. Repentance, that's right. We're told that people went out, John was down there in the wilderness, he was preaching to repent because the kingdom of God was hand at a hand, and we're told that many people, all of Jerusalem and Judea, even the Jewish religious leaders sent down an official delegation down into the wilderness 
to hear John, and many people were told were cut to the quick, and they went down into the river, and they were baptized. But they weren't baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't come until the end, when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples just prior to his ascension. It's after his death, after his resurrection. The only baptism at this point is the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance. So if this is a reference to baptism, what Jesus is basically saying, unless a person repents and then is filled with the Holy Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But this is not a reference to Christian baptism, which is what we're doing in the prayer book. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. That in the chronology of John, only John at this point was baptizing. Now, there are some other possible meanings that have been suggested. Some have suggested that what this is a reference to is physical as well as spiritual birth. That when a child is born, when a woman goes into labor, what happens? One of the first things that happens is her water breaks. And so some have suggested that that's what this is a reference to. Jesus is saying you must be born physically but you also have to be born again spiritually. And so some have suggested that that is what is being suggested here, that you've got to be born physically, yes, born of water, but then you have to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Others have suggested, as I said, that it is a reference to repentance, to John's baptism, and to spiritual birth. I'll confess to you, this is still contested among scholars today as to what the meaning really is here with water and spirit. Some have even suggested that because water is used as an image for the Word of God, the Word of God cleanses, that perhaps this is a reference to Word and Spirit. What we do know, though, is that it is not a reference to Christian baptism. It's just not a reference to Christian baptism. There have been many people, quite frankly, who have been saved without ever being baptized, the thief on the cross being the most obvious example of someone. He was dying on the cross. He'd never been baptized. He was a malcontent, a robber. And he cried out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to see the kingdom. He'd never been baptized. And on the other hand, there are plenty of people in history who have been baptized, but have never shown any evidence whatsoever of a supernatural new birth. How many of you have been to the Holy Land with me, or you've been to the Holy Land? Uh, well, you're going to get an opportunity, incidentally. Um, there's going to come out an announcement next week for those of you who would like to go. We're going to have a trip going in the spring, in June. Um, so if you're interested, you can sign up for that. Now, if you've been to the Holy Land, I guarantee you one of the places you've been is the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the loveliest spots in all of Galilee, and it has one of the loveliest little chapels up there. It's a beautiful little chapel built in the round, so my grandmother used to say, the devil can't corner you. <laughs> so there it is, this lovely little chapel built in the round on the top, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's absolutely beautiful. Many people say that's the, the loveliest site in all of the Holy Land until I tell them who built it. Benito Mussolini built it one of the most evil fascists of the 20th century. He was an altar boy. So was Adolf Hitler. Both baptized, both confirmed. It's no guarantee, you see. It's no guarantee. 
So what in the world is the prayer book talking about? Well, the prayer book is using the language of what we would call charitable supposition. It's reminding us that this is the sacrament. It represents new birth. And of course, this would have been even more evident in the early days of the church when they baptized by immersion. Now, we sprinkle babies today, but in the old days, people were baptized by immersion. They were dunked. And that going under the water represented death, and the coming back out of the water represented life. Even in the Orthodox Church today, the Eastern Orthodox Church, where they do baptize infants, do you know that they immerse the babies? Naked, completely, under the water to represent death and new birth. So there is something that gets a little bit lost in the sprinkling aspect. Because in the early days, that's what it represented. It represented death to self and new life. So what the prayer book is saying is that, yes, that's what baptism represents. But nowhere does the prayer book, and nowhere does the scripture suggest to us that the act happens automatically. What theologians call ex opera operato, by the by the doing of the thing itself. In fact, if that's what you believe about the baptismal office, then it throws the rest of the prayer book into confusion because there are other parts of the prayer book that make it very clear that is not the case. There's a principle when you interpret the Bible, you can find it in the 39 articles, that you never interpret one portion of Scripture that it be repugnant to another portion of Scripture. Scripture illuminates Scripture. So, for example, the Apostle Paul was the great apostle of grace through faith. He said, we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. That's Ephesians. That's pretty plain, isn't it? You're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. It's also the same Paul who said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you just take one passage out of its context and build a whole theology around it, what's going to happen? You're going to throw the whole thing into confusion. If you take one passage out of the prayer book and build a theology around it, you'll throw the whole thing into confusion. This is the language of charitable supposition. We trust that on the basis of the faith of the parents, that if they do their job of raising up the child in the way that they should go, that child will one day own that faith for themselves. And when they own that faith for themselves, they will experience a new birth. So it is the language of hope. It is the language of charitable supposition. It's the same thing we do in the burial office. When you read through the burial office, which to me, you're going to think this is rather morbid, but it's one of my favorite services in the entire prayer book because it's so filled with hope and, and the, the message of the resurrection. But what is interesting is that the prayer book assumes that the person in the casket is a believer. Now, are they? Can I say that over years, I've been in this almost 30 years, that every single person I have buried is a believer? As a matter of fact, I know a few who probably were not believers, and they would tell you that. That's not me passing judgment. They would probably tell you that. But their family members wanted them buried and so forth, and so we use the language of the prayer book, but it's the language of hope. It's the language of charitable supposition. We know that their eternal state is known only to God. That's what we're doing in baptism as well. Now, bishop J.C. Ryle, who was the great Liverpool bishop, Bishop of Liverpool, England, one of the great evangelical lights of the Church of England, put it this way. 
He says, as for maintaining that the ministerial act of baptizing a child or anyone else did always necessarily convey regeneration and that every infant baptized was invariably born again, I believe it never entered into the thoughts of those who drew up the prayer book. He said, in the judgment of charity and hope, they supposed all to be regenerated in baptism and used language accordingly. Whether any particular child was actually and really regenerated, they left to be decided by its life and the ways when it grew up. To say that the assertions of the prayer book baptismal service are to be taken for more than charitable supposition will be found on close examination to throw the whole prayer book into confusion. So nobody is automatically baptized and born again. Heck, if that was the case, folks, it'd be my job to line you up and hose you down. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. My job would be done. I'd be drawing a paycheck, and it would be pretty easy work. Well, if it's not by baptism, then how is it that somebody does come to experience this new birth without which Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God? I realize I'm running out of time. I was almost willing to say, well, you have to come back next week, but I've already done that once. And some of you came back just to figure this out. So let me go ahead and tell you how it comes about. It comes about through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Go back to John chapter 3 and look at verses 9 through 15 again. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is the critical verse, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you and I may be somewhat unfamiliar with the analogy that Jesus is drawing here. But Nicodemus would not have been. As a Jew, Nicodemus would have known this story very well. It's a story that comes from the book of Numbers. It takes place after the Exodus. The Hebrew children have been delivered by signs and wonders and the power of God's outstretched arm. They are out wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You know that. That was a long time. I used to always be really hard on the Jewish people or the Hebrew people in those days, the Israelites, because we're told that they were chronic complainers. And I thought, well, God's providing manna from heaven and he's providing water from a rock. What are they complaining about? And then I went to the Sinai Peninsula. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that is the most, it's like the surface of the moon. It is the most barren place you can imagine. There's nothing out there but scorpions and snakes, whatever it is, it's going to bite you or sting you. It's a terrible place. I suddenly had a great deal of compassion for them. I could understand exactly why they were complaining. But of course, God had been taking care of them. And they, yet they continued to complain to such a degree that God decided to discipline them. 
And to me, this is absolutely terrifying because you all know I have a phobia about snakes. I can, spiders, anything, nothing bothers me, but I hate snakes. And God decides to discipline them by sending what is described as a, vo a brood of fiery serpents into their camp. These are venomous snakes that bite the people. Asps, whatever they are, pit vipers, I don't know. But they're biting the people, and they're dying. And Moses explains to them, this is God's discipline. God's disciplining you for all your complaining and your whining and your moaning. You thought you had it better? And so the people say, well, ask God to have mercy on us. Ask God to supply some sort of an antidote. People have been trying everything to, to somehow allay the power of the snake bite. They would put on salves and poultices and all sorts of things, and nothing worked. The people were perishing. They were dying. And Moses finally went to the Lord and he said, you've got to provide an antidote. You've, you, you've brought these people out for a purpose. The descendants of Abraham, your covenant, your promise is eternal. If these people perish out here, everything dries up and you're proved to be false. And God said, well, I'm going to supply an antidote. Moses said, whatever it is, I'll do it. He says, here's what you are to do. Make a serpent out of bronze and place it on a pole in the middle of the camp and tell the people to look to that for salvation. And Moses says, and what else do I need to do? And the Lord says, nothing. That is all you need to do. Well, there's got to be something else. Bronze serpents don't save anybody. The Lord said, I have provided a means. Now, are you going to quibble about this, or are you going to trust in the means of my salvation? And we're told that everyone, they did it, they placed this bronze serpent, incidentally, what is the form, what is the symbol of the American Medical Association today? The caduceus, a serpent on a pole. So the serpent on the pole was the answer, and everyone who went and trusted in God's antidote was saved. Everything else they tried didn't work, but if they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were saved. Well, what Jesus is saying is just as Moses had to lift up that serpent that the people who were snake bit and were perishing were saved, so God has provided someone who's going to be lifted up on a tree. And whoever looks to him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And you say, well, it can't be that simple. What else do I have to do? And God says, that is my means of salvation. That one who will pay the price in full for the sins and transgressions of the world, you look to him. Stop looking to yourself and start looking to him and trusting in him alone and you will be saved. You will see the kingdom of God. That's how a person is born again. You've got to acknowledge the fact that you're snake bit. Every single one of us is snake bit. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now somebody says, well, I'm not as snake bit as somebody else. Listen. <laughs> if you're snake bit, you're snake bit. We, we always like to compare ourselves to other people. I'm going to quote from Bishop Hanley Mole in the sermon today. He was the great Bishop of Durham. But he had these wonderful quotes, just wonderful illustrations of things. I used this one recently in the Romans class. 
Bishop Hanley Mole says, you may look at somebody else and think, oh, they're much worse than you. You look at the prostitute or the murderer and you think that you're much worse than they are. He said, but that's not the case. He said, they may stand in the bottom of a mine shaft and you, by comparison, stand on the highest point in the Alps. He said, but the problem is this, you're both incapable of reaching the stars. You're just as incapable of reaching the stars on the highest point in the Alps as they are on the bottom of the mine shaft. And that's where we are. We're both incapable of reaching God. And so God reaches down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, makes Him the atoning sacrifice for the sins, publicly placards Him for all the world to see there on that miserable cross, and says, simply look to me and you will be saved. It's so simple and yet for so many people it's so hard because they always want to add something to it. You cannot add to the grace of God. He alone must do it. You must admit that you're snake bit. You alone must recognize that He alone is capable of saving you. He is the salve. He is the medicine for what ails you. Now, if you've done that, the promise is that you will experience a new birth. And that new birth will be evident in the way you live your life. You know, many people will walk down an aisle as they're playing just as I am, as every head is bowed and every, you know, eyes closed, and say the words. But if they mean it from the heart, something will happen to them. Jesus said it will be a new birth. What's the first thing that a doctor listens for when a baby is born? A cry. A cry of new life. That's one of the evidences that you're a Christian, that you've been born again, is your willingness to talk about Jesus Christ. Your willingness to share the good news. One of the other evidences of a new birth is true repentance. We talk about that in the prayer book. True repentance and what? Amendment of life. What is true repentance? True repentance is not only acknowledging your sins, it's bewailing them. You ever notice we say that in the, in the confession? We acknowledge and bewail. It's one thing to admit that you're a sinner. It's another thing to be sorry for it. The kid that gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught, but it doesn't mean he's sorry he did it. One of the evidences of new birth is to acknowledge and to bewail, to see ourselves in the light of eternity for what we really are. One of the signs of new birth is new priorities. When you have a new birth, you, you suddenly realize what really matters in life. If you've ever had a life-threatening illness, or you've ever had a life-threatening surgery, all of a sudden, life takes on a whole new perspective. You suddenly begin to realize all those things that you were worrying about, all those things that you thought were priorities, they're really not priorities. When you're in danger of losing a loved one, and then that person comes back, as it were, from the brink, you suddenly realize what value they are to you. Well, one of the signs of new birth is new priorities. Oftentimes, for believers, it's a love of God's Word. When you realize that God has saved you, you can't get enough. All you want to do is spend time with Him. And a new birth results in changed behavior. You're no longer the person that you were. You are a new creation. Now, that doesn't mean that you automatically change overnight. Some people do. The Apostle Paul changed in many ways overnight, but not entirely. 
New birth, regeneration is one thing. Sanctification, being made into what you've been declared to be, that is something very different. And that is a lifelong process. But you should see a change in your life. A new set of priorities. More compassion for others. A recognition of your... One of the things that you'll discover when you're born again is your sin becomes more obvious to you. Maybe not obvious to anybody else, but it'll become more obvious to you. And the preciousness of the cross will become more obvious to you as well. That's what Nicodemus was seeking. That's why he came to Jesus. Because Jesus had what he did not, and he longed more than anything else to have it. Do you have it? You don't have to leave here today without having it. You may say, well, I'm not sure I want to change then you will spend the rest of your life being restless like Nicodemus. St. Augustine put it well. He said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. If you've never done so, admit that you're snake bit. Admit that your life's a wreck. Regardless of how it looks, regardless of whether you're like Nicodemus and you're moral and upright and you come from a distinguished family, Admit the fact that there's something missing in your life. Admit the fact that you are restless. Admit the fact that you need what only God can supply. And look to that one who is lifted high upon the tree. Place your trust in him. And you will be born again. And you will see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful story of Nicodemus. We thank you for this promise of new birth. We thank you that Jesus did not beat around the bush, but he went right to the heart of the matter. And he told Nicodemus what was wrong with him and what's wrong with all of us. Grant us the grace, Lord, to see ourselves as we really are, not respectable people, but broken sinners. Grant us the grace to look and to trust in that one who is lifted high, that he might draw all men to himself. For it's in his name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.